Hello and welcome to The Rev Up, uh, the podcast where we talk about all things revenue, growth, marketing, sales, and all the aspects in between uh, and try and have a little bit of fun along the way. Uh, I am the host of The Rev Up, Ben Shipley. I am the Chief Growth Officer at Trust the Process. Uh, Trust the Process is a, an outsourcing provider. Uh, for roles predominantly in the Philippines to cover things like uh, marketing, sales, operations, service delivery, uh, admin, finance, and all of the above, as well as helping businesses to implement technology into their business uh, in order to systemize, automate, and delegate their way to growth and success. Uh, today on the podcast, we are going to be joined by an old friend of mine, uh, Ross Ashman, who is co-founder of a business called Public Sector Network. Uh, Ross started that business with a uh, a colleague, a former colleague of both of ours, uh, Charlie Hamer, back in 2015. Uh, their first event, which Ross will talk a bit, a bit about in this session, uh, was deliberately focused on the toughest audience they could possibly think of. They uh, work exclusively within the public sector uh, running uh, events. Uh, and over the last, what are we now, seven, eight years, uh, they've grown to a $20 million plus business with uh, 150 staff across multiple locations, just launched Canada, uh, in 2018, launched into the US in late 2020. Uh, obviously, difficult timing, but uh, very important. Uh, and with UK coming online uh, this year. So exciting times for Public Sector Network and for Ross. Ross is also somebody that um, I would say is a master in the world of sales and sales leadership. Uh, he has plenty of skills, obviously, from building a business like this in terms of uh, in terms of audience creation uh, and business building, uh, but that is where his main skills have have existed over the years. And he is somebody that I have gone to many times over the years for advice and for help, uh, and is somebody that I consider an absolute thought leader in this particular world that we are talking about here: revenue generation and growth. Uh, so today we will talk about his journey, some of his beliefs, uh, and get stuck into what things you can learn from a journey like Ross's. Uh, so over to myself <laughs> to intro this episode, and I hope you all enjoy. Obviously, today on the show, we have Ross Ashman. Welcome to the show, Ross. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Been, uh, been too long, mate. <laughs> for sure. You and I have had uh, so many conversations about business over the years. I figured we may as well just hit record on one of them uh, and see how we go. Uh, to set let's, hope, let's hope this is one of the good ones. <laughs> there's, certainly, <laughs> there's certainly not all good. We're not batting a thousand, right? Uh, to set the scene, uh, you and I have known each other for over a decade. We used to, we first met when we used to work together in a company called IQPC. That may be a, uh, a familiar theme for this show going forward. Um, along with your co-founder at PSN, Charlie. Uh, yeah. And to be honest, like, it feels like half of your staff at PSN are, are past colleagues or friends of mine, uh, particularly in some of the key roles. 
Um, we, as I said, met at IQPC. We were running sales teams in different divisions. You were running all of the division. I was running a sales team within sponsorship. We kind of almost did a, a job swap at one point. Uh, we did, yeah. Yeah, you basically took my boss's job and I took your job. Um, we've stayed in touch for years, did some consulting together to run some sales training for various organizations, like lots of stuff over the years, always talking. Um, and I would say kind of stayed in touch because, uh, it feels like we're sort of kindred spirits in terms of our passion for business, our passion for leadership and people and sales and all these sorts of things. Um, I will have done a bit of a bio for people, but um, in the opening for this show, but I'm sure people would love to hear a little bit of your story, you know, sort of straight from the horse's mouth, as they say. Um, to me, your story along with your co-founder, Charlie, has been super impressive to watch going from a successful sales rep to a sales leader to ultimately building a business generating fucking $20 million plus in revenue with a hundred staff globally, all in less than like less than a decade, super fast. Yeah. What's the sort of half a glass of wine version of like how you got here and why you went down this path? Yeah, good, good question. Thanks for that. I think we both know that I don't do half glasses of wine. So um, <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll call this the half bottle version. Um, <laughs> Look, like, like most people, I think I got into sales by accident. I think that's a, a bit of a trend, uh, certainly for the older generation. I class myself as the older generation now. You know, I think there is um, certainly more people nowadays that are generally seeing sales and, and genuinely seeing sales as a career path for them. Mm. But, you know, 15, 20 years ago, I think it was one of those jobs that you sort of fell into. Um, I was qualified and meant to be going to be a, a, a sort of solicitor, a lawyer. Um, I realized that wasn't the path for me, um, but there were elements of it that I liked that was transferable into a sales role. So yeah, as you mentioned, I, I started with IQPC in London, um, did several years there, again, went through the, the ranks, managing sales teams and the like, uh, moved off to uh, a company called IMG, uh, one of the largest sports, or well, probably the yeah. largest sports um, sort of hospitality, uh, hospitality groups in the world, uh, worked at the FA and Wembley Stadium before coming over to Australia to, and uh, sort of meeting yourself at IQPC Australia, where, as you said, I was sort of effectively the commercial director at the back end of that. Um, I think the reason I sort of give that, that potted history is, is because at every step of the, that journey, um, I was seeing things, hearing things, learning things, and I think all contributed to, to getting to me, mm. getting me, sorry, to where I was about eight years ago when I decided to go and do this for myself. So, you know, I, I, I strongly believe that um, sales is simple, not easy. Uh, I think that's a phrase you and I have thrown around quite, quite yep. often. Um, and, and business is the same, to be honest with you. You know, if you boil business down to its, its nuts and bolts, you know, it is find a customer that you can deliver a service to and make more money than you spend. They are the kind of key attributes to run in a business. If you can do those two things, uh, you're, you're, you're away. <laughs> Unless you're a big tech player, then uh, apparently well, you can just keep making money forever. Keep without, writing uh, off losses forever, yeah. I'm, um, I, I have strong opinions on that stuff, to be honest with you. Oh, perhaps that's, that's for another podcast. <laughs> Seems like it's changing. Seems like it's yeah. changing. Yeah. Uh, I often I often think of it like um, I spent years making mistakes on somebody else's money. 
Mm. Yeah, that's a good way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, you certainly sharpen your focus when it's your own money that you're wasting. Yeah, but but what what sort of so did you just kind of reach a critical point where you were like, I believe in myself, I know what I'm doing, I know how to do this stuff. It's time to do it for myself. Was there like a, a critical moment? <sighs> Combination of factors, to be honest with you. I'd, I'd, I'd hit a bit of a glass ceiling where I was at the time. Mm -hmm. um, I'd been in that role in that company for quite a while anyway. So, you know, it's probably becoming a little bit sort of stale for me. Um, I already had an extended trip planned. I wanted to go to the Brazil World Cup uh, for the duration of the tournament. So I already had a couple of months where I was planning on going away. And at that point, it just felt like it was a good time to break and go and do something different. Um, now, at that point, I wasn't wed on what I ended up doing, but I certainly had designs on I'm going to go and try and do something for myself. Because, as you said, at that point, I felt that I probably had enough experience, good and bad. And um, it was probably the right point in my life. I would have been, you know, just sort of coming into my 30s at that, that stage where I thought, this is probably a good time to do it before the family and everything else. You know, this seems like the opportune moment to go and if I'm going to go fuck up, let's go do it now um, <laughs> rather than doing it, you know, when I'm 40 or 50 or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. I think a lot of people that come out of um, sales or also product delivery to some degree, um, I think it's really interesting because you spend so many years having conversations with people within a particular, you know, um, successful business, and IQPC is no mm. small business, right? No, one of the largest conference providers in the world. Yeah. And so you spend all these years speaking to people and hearing uh, what they don't like, right, mm. while they still buy. I think it's a really yeah. interesting launch pad for a lot of people because they go, well, I'm just going to differentiate by doing the opposite of all of the things that people don't like. That's how most businesses are started, to be candid yeah. with you. You know, the reality is it's somebody within, as you said, a, a sales, a customer-facing role or a product-facing role where um, they are getting feedback from the customer about what they want to be better or different, but they can't do that within the constraints of their own business. And if you take IQPC as an example, when they get on certainly not knocking IQPC, I owe pretty much my entire career to that company, <laughs> um, and certainly a lot of my training, uh, again, you know, if you look at it, they're making a lot of money doing what they're doing. Why are they going to change the model just because I say so? You know, I might be mm -hmm. saying, well, the customer wants to see It's too hard. We're doing okay. We don't need to do that. But then you'll get that person will get to a point where that's all they're hearing and that's all they can think about. And so they go, well, actually, I'm going to go do this myself then. If you can't do it or won't do it, I'm prepared to take that gamble and I'm going to go do it myself. And yeah, look, sure. some... Some work, some don't. Let's be let's be real about it. You know, uh, the vast majority of businesses are you know done and dusted within you know eighteen months. So uh, yeah. it's it is easier said than done. You know, just getting the feedback yeah. and going and doing it yourself is is no guarantee of success. Yeah, I think um, it is probably the conference industry is a little <clears throat> different to some in terms of the complexity of stepping out. Like if somebody works in an accountancy firm for 20 years and they're like, I don't like the way they do this. I'm going to go do it my own way. I think I can do it better. Being a great accountant has almost nothing to do with running an accountancy business. Uh, yeah. But being great in this, particularly in the sales side of an events business or even the operational side of an events business is a lot. That, about is, the that. Business. <laughs> yes. that is the business. Yes, <laughs> it is. Yeah, 100% agree. 100% um, agree. 
You know, something I find really interesting with what you guys have done over there, you know, you came out of sales, uh, Charlie came out of production and and the sort of operational delivery product side of the business. Um, but I would guess the success of your, uh, your main business public sector network, uh, and please tell me if I'm wrong here, is largely down... Oh, I will. <laughs> yeah, appreciate that. <laughs> I know you'll always be honest with me, Ross. Uh, I... I would guess is largely down to how you've been able to build an audience and create demand with an audience. That is to be, to be fair, fucking tough to crack. Like yeah. what, have, what have you learned about um, demand creation and audience building um, and what's been sort of important to cracking that public sector nut for you guys? Yeah. So you're right. So if you were Ron, I'll tell you Ron, but you're right. So I'll let you have that one. Um, <laughs> I think there was a couple of key factors there, as you mentioned. I think, you know, again, when we were, when I was kicking around ideas of what to do and where to go and all the rest of it, there was a couple of key things that stood out to me, right? Because I tried a couple of different things when I left. But the key thing to me was, number one, I needed to get a business partner that complemented my skill set. You know, I knew what I was good at. I knew the value I could add in certain areas, but I also knew where my gaps were. And, you know, you can labor and try and do it all yourself, but I'm, I'm that kind of guy that thinks, well, I don't want me to own the whole pie. I'd rather own half of a much bigger pie. Um, and so how do you grow the pie? That's the, the real interesting part. And you could do that with a business partner. So that was part of it, which was I could do half the business. Charlie could do the other half. And actually, if you look at our customer base, he kind of owns half of it and I own half of it. So he owns the, the government, you know, public sector side of the relationship. I own the commercial private sector vendors sponsor side of it. And so there's two different audience groups that you need to build there. But I think one of the reasons we picked public sector as a sector, I mean, again, look, you know, when we worked for IQPC, we ran multiple conferences across multiple sectors. Okay. And, you know, we did stuff in mining, we did stuff in retail, we did stuff in shared services, banking, finance, a little bit in government, not much, but, you know, we were doing, lots and lots of different events to lots and lots of different people and that's great because you kind of spread in and, and hedging yeah. your bets a little bit but the problem is by you know trying to be all things to all men you end up being sort of nothing to nobody right and so i felt we felt that if we just focused on one industry one sector and really drill down into that niche. And let's be honest, government is pretty much the biggest niche in the world as an FYI. Mm -hmm. So whilst I'm yep. saying it's a niche, it's still arguably the largest niche mm -hmm. in the world if you think about all the different facets. And There's niches within the niche. Ah, niches within the niches within the niche within the niche. Yeah, yeah local, local government, all the different Local parts, state, yeah. health, transport, justice. I mean, it's, you know, it's a- Procurement. But it is, it is, but it's a niche within itself anyway. So. You know, we looked at it and said, well, let's not try and do go and do everything. Let's just do one thing really fucking well, right? And let's just focus on that, become experts at that. And that's how we'll create a following and a brand and an audience because you won't come to us unless you do, you're involved in that government space in some way. And we, we stamped it on the front of the business, public sector network. Do you know what I mean? Like we made it really obvious <laughs> what yep. we do and don't do. If you're interested in public sector, come to us. If you're interested in any other sector, we're not the business for you. Um, and so it kind of made it really easy for us to go about building a brand and go about building an audience because we just made it super clear what we did and what we didn't do. I feel like that was a lesson I, I always learned from um, my time at IQPC. I haven't always followed it over the years, but uh, you kind of want it to do what it says on the tin, right? Like we used to run an event and it'd be like, 
regional airports, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> what do you think it's about? <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, again, it comes back to making things simple, right? You know, yeah. um, move away from complexity, keep things simple. People understand what it is, what it does and how it does it. And you make that easy for them to understand. You're already three or four steps ahead than everyone else. You know, most other people mm -hmm. are trying to be very opaque and clever and, you know, vague and all the rest of it just mm -hmm. confuses the hell out of people. <laughs> yep. Yep. For sure. Um, it, uh, it seemed at the start that your revenue model was very sponsorship based which for anyone that hasn't been in that world, it's a lot like selling, you know, advertising, advertising. audience yeah. and brands yeah. use you to gain access to the audience. Is that still the case as far as the revenue model for PSN? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. That's still, you know, 99% of our revenue at the moment. Um, again, you know, without diving too far into the, the kind of business model piece, we always felt that government shouldn't pay to hear from other people within the government sector. It's mm -hmm. their information, it's publicly available. Why should Department of Transport pay a premium to hear from Department of Health, to hear from Justice? They're all on the same side. It's not like you know banks or retail, mm -hmm. or anything else where there's competition. They should be sharing this information. They're not, but they should be. And so we yeah. didn't think it was right to put a premium on that. And so we said, well, what we'll do is we'll just make that information, we'll just democratize that information, make it as freely available as we can and help government come to events and learn. Yeah. The people that stand to benefit the most from this, if we can get the audience there, is that vendor community, the suppliers, the service providers. And so for us, it felt right that if we can bring together 100 CIOs in a room and you sell to CIOs, you can afford to bankroll this event because you stand to, you know, 10x, 100x your, your, your um, uh, investment if you make money off the back of it. So that was the model yeah. from the start. That's the model we wanted to stick with. And yeah, that's the model that we, we still are going with. It seems like from a sort of, um, yeah, from a product perspective, you guys did a really good job of like turning the audience uh, into more of a partner in your events than, uh, you know, a target market to be sold to. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like that was a conscious decision. Well, very much so. And again, it comes back to, you know, you only win and keep customers by offering value, right? Um, and although we're not charging for the product, we're still asking people to make an investment of their time, their IP, to come to these events to share their stories. So it still has to be, you know, shit hot for them to want to do it. Um, and there's two ways you can build product. You can get, you can speak internally and guess what people want, or you can actually go to the customer and engage them in that process and say, what are you focused on? Why, how do we deliver something that offers value to you and all the rest of it? And again, I think because we've been consistent with our messaging, it didn't happen overnight. You know, it's taken a few years for people to buy into that. But when people see you acting uh, congruently and consistently with what you say you're going to do over time they then buy into that and go okay well you guys aren't sharks or charlatans you actually do mean what you say you keep turning up and delivering value and never wavering yeah we'll get involved we'll help more because other companies out there aren't doing it that way it's one of those things that's easier said than done once you've proven over and over again that you do care about the the output and the value to the customer they will take a more active role in, you know, helping you shape what things need to look like. And um, again, I, I do go back to the fact that I think it's easier to do that 
when you are just focused on one audience. Um, again, a, a large audience. But again, if we were trying to run programs, sorry, just throwing my pen around there. If we were trying to um, run events with multiple industries involved, it's harder to get that kind of engagement because, again, you're trying to please too many masters there. Whereas by just working with the public sector, what do you need? How do we deliver that? Yeah, some of those industries almost have their own language too, that if you Correct, yeah. speak it, you feel like more of a part of it. Um, we, you talked a little bit about your sort of story leading up to uh, public sector network. Um, I'd be really interested to know, like, you know, we talked a little bit there about turning your audience into your partners, about um, uh, customer value, which I know is a really important thing, which I think we should talk more about in a, in a moment. But have there been like a couple of uh, or a few sort of key decisions that you would give as advice, like things that you guys did along the journey that you wish you had known from the start or, you know, you definitely confirmed you would do again? Like what's been sort of some key moments for you? Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a big question. I mean, again, I think the, the first message I would give to anyone that is thinking or starting on the journey is to, to just do it, okay? Because you will never know unless you try it and not trying for me is the worst thing because you're just going to be mm. constantly sat there wrapped with, you know, what ifs. Um, you know, just give it a go. What's the worst that's going to happen? You know, the worst that's going to happen is you're going to foul and you're going to have to go back and go to a day job. That's fine. I mean, you know, that's, more and more employers are looking for people like that that mm. are entrep entrepreneurial, that are prepared to take a risk. That's not like sure. a, a, a blemish on the CV anymore nowadays. That most for most people is like, oh, okay, great. You've got the balls to go do this. Brilliant. Um, so I think that's the first thing is, you know, don't waste any time. Get on with it. Um, you know, 100% you have to set, set yourself some key milestones and metrics and goals and targets. You can't go into it just airy-fairy, floundering around and, and all the rest of it. Um, and I just say you're just going to do something really hard to test it. And I mean, one of the things that we did, which in hindsight, I think was one of the best decisions we made was, you know, when we picked our first event to run, I said to, to my business partner, I said, let's, what's the hardest thing that we could possibly do? What's the hardest topic that we could pick straight out the gate? And he said, national security. I mean, you know, of all the hierarchical ranks in government, <laughs> you know, national security is the, the, the pinnacle of, you know, hard to reach, trust, brand, won't deal with people that they don't know, but that is the absolute pinnacle. And I said, okay, great, let's do that. Um, and on paper, you think, Jesus, are you fucking mad? But my logic was, and his logic was, if we can get that one done, Everything else after that is going to be a lot easier. And that's kind of that, um, you know, mm. uh, eat that frog model, um, yeah. <laughs> which is do the biggest, hardest, scariest thing first. Because if you can get that bit done right, then everything else is going to be easier. People have a natural tendency to try and do the small, easy tasks first and pat themselves on the back. Oh, I'm doing a good job mm. here, ignoring the hard bit. Just do it, get in, do the hard thing first. If you get that bit done and you succeed, which we did, Again, we could then use that to then propel the business forward. Um, you know, there's lots of other lessons. I mean, Jesus Christ, we've made so many mistakes. And I think that's the other probably lesson is you're going to make mistakes. That's the reality. Mm. You know, anyone yep. that thinks they're coming in and running a flawless business is, you know, mad. It just doesn't happen. You know, the key is 
try and minimize your mistakes, minimize how big they are and move on from them pretty quickly. You can't let them, you know, overwhelm you. Um, but fundamentally, look, running a big business comes back to some of the things I know, again, we you know plan to talk about. It's, you know, having the right people in place, building the right processes and having the right technology to underpin the business and, and grow it. And, you know, every business is different in terms of what they need. So it's not for me to sit here and say, this is how we did it. This is how you should do it. But fundamentally, you know, they're, they're, they're the kind of decisions you need to make. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, there's that old, so the first one you mentioned there about like, give it a go, there's that old analogy of the fork in the road, like who's further yeah. along the path, the person standing looking at the fork in the road or the person that went down one of the roads and went the wrong way? Yeah, right? yeah. The one who went down the wrong way, because at least they know they went the wrong way. They can come back now and make a different decision, you know, but yeah. the longer you sit there looking at that fork in the road, you'll never actually figure out whether it was right for you or not. Well, the old, the old Michael Jordan uh, one, you, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, you know. I think that was so, Wayne Gretzky. Wayne Gretzky. Oh, Gretzky, damn it. I was giving Jordan too much credit. You, you getting a sports uh, quote wrong. wrong it's a rarity. Yeah, I know. It's odd, that one. I'm going to have to update my, uh, my notes on that one. Gretzky, <laughs> damn it, hockey. You'll never slide one of those past me, my friend. No, I know exactly. If all the people to call me out on it, it was you. Another, another host wouldn't have known or been kind enough to let it pass. You've, <laughs> you've blown me up. <laughs> I can't help myself. Can't help myself. Um, do you know something I, I always remember um, that we've talked about a, a lot and it's been a part of training that you've done for salespeople over the years is um, sales has changed a lot over the years, mm. right? Uh, how it was done in the 80s and 90s was fundamentally different to how it needed to be done in the 2000s, 2010s, 2010s to, I would say, yeah, yeah. I, I would actually say even the, the timelines are shortening. Um, well, the pace of change is accelerating, right? Every yeah, year it's yeah. um, getting quicker and quicker and quicker. Um, buyer behavior it feels mm -hmm. like has actually changed again in the last few years. Is that something that you've seen? Is there um, anything that you've kind of noticed with how people are buying and where they're getting their information from and all that sort of stuff that's, that's been a difference? Yeah, look, I, think, um, I think the key difference is obviously the proliferation of information that's freely available on the internet, right? And so, again, if you think about how people used to buy, as you said, 20, 30 years ago, it was the salesperson that typically held all of the information and you know the, the 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 buyer had to extract it out of the seller um and so therefore the seller could you know generally speaking <laughs> you know position it the way they wanted to position it that's where that whole you know buyer beware piece comes from yep. is you know salespeople were seen and hence the reason that the industry comes with a reputation of not being the most most ethical um if anything now it's the opposite it's it's seller beware because the reality is, is that buyers are now so clued up because of, you know, TV, mm. internet, referrals, word of mouth, that very often people go into a, 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 to a purchasing decision having done a lot of research already. They already have a very clear idea in their mind as to what it is they need, why they need it, the results it's going to come, the cost and everything else. So the salesperson's role has changed from a sort of a traditional seller, if you will, as to more of a, a coach or a partner, somebody to try and help get the deal done as opposed to necessarily purely trying to, you know, sort of twist mm. someone's arm to, to make the sale happen. 
Um, so I think that's the biggest difference is just where buyers are typically beginning their journey or beginning their engagement with salespeople. They're a lot further along that buying journey than they were, you know, 20, 10, even five years ago. Yeah, I think what like what you guys do is interesting in terms of how it aligns to consumer behavior because, um, you know, like let's say the last 10 years, one of the one of the most commonly used strategies in the world of, of marketing and then sales is the lead magnet, for example, right? Mm -hmm. You send out something that's of interest, that's a particular piece of information that somebody's going to go, oh, I really need one of those, that template, whatever. Um, and then they download it and they put their information in and then someone calls them uh, and tries to book them in to have a conversation about solving a problem. And yeah. I think even in the last couple of years, uh, and I know we have some, 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 um, uh, common people in our lives that have similar beliefs, uh, about this. I think people are much less interested and much less forgiving of being like tricked into your sales pipeline now yeah. than they were even a couple of years ago. And yeah. so, so where a business like yours is super interesting is because, a lot of decisions are being made, as you say, through research, but then also getting insight and input and suggestions from people within a community, within yeah. business communities uh, and networks. And so kind of being a business community and networks for government, it's almost like you guys are in exactly the place where a lot of people should be doing their search. And I know you'd obviously say yes to this because it's beneficial to you. <laughs> this is my personal opinion. <laughs> it's, like, it's like that's the place that you need to be because that's the stuff that not only is working right now, but it's also the stuff that your attribution software and your marketing is not going to tell you ever happened. Correct. Right? Yeah. You're going to have someone go, uh, at a PSN event, you're going to have someone say, oh, who should I use for um, endpoint security? Uh, and someone yeah. says, you should talk to these guys. And then they go and Google them. And that company's uh, attribution software says that was organic search. And so you go and spend yeah. a whole bunch of money on SEO. And it had not nothing realizing, to do with yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not realizing the referral came from the event exactly right exactly right and I, I think the point you've made there is is key right i think um people again are more aware now of the tricks you know of mm. download you now know if you enter your details into someone's website you know 30 seconds later your phone's going to be ringing and it's a, a salesperson trying to book an appointment with you that's why a lot of people don't do that anymore i generally don't do that if i <clears throat> see that i have to put my details in to get something i'll very often just not not bother mm. we actually in terms of how we attract customers we don't gate that much stuff really um to try and sort of trick people in we let people access the information and then within the information there is a call to action and mm -hmm. we back the fact that if people pick that up and read it and go wow that was good i want more of this that they will get in contact with us to yep. do so so it's really more backing the value of what you're delivering versus, as you said, tricking people in to get it. But yeah, again, at the moment, you know, as we, we've seen, people are less inclined to go do that. And so they go to other sources for information. And, you know, government do come to us a lot for research, insights, white papers, you know, vendor landscapes, content, uh, news. And so, again, 
our point of view for our suppliers, our, our sponsors is you want to be part of that community. Get yourself in there. That's going to generate you more interest than hoping someone goes to your website and downloads a brochure and an SDR is going to call them. Yeah. Um, I know you, you believe in the important, like I, th- I think this ties into, you believe in the importance of uh, providing value to customers, customers making that a priority within the business. Can you talk to us a little bit about that sort of uh, core belief of yours? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's, it's <laughs> self-interested to a certain extent. Mm. And let me, let me put it through the lens of, of this, right? Unless you are one of those companies that is in that real big generic B2C space where almost anybody on the planet could be a customer for you, most firms, most companies have a finite amount of customers they can work with. Now, it could be, could be a couple of hundred, could be a couple of thousand, could be a couple of hundred thousand, could be a couple of million, but nonetheless, it is still a finite amount. So once you've won a customer over for the first time, to me, it makes a lot more sense to invest time, money, and effort to keep that customer happy than it is to try and go find a new customer. Because if you keep burning through customers and pissing customers off and not delivering, there will become a point where you run out of customers or mm. the amount of bad customers you've burned are going to start telling new customers, don't work with that company. You know, they're charlatans. They're not very good. So I think a lot of companies spend a lot of time worrying about net new logos and how do we new, win, win new business to grow. Perfectly valid. But you can also grow just by working with an existing client base. You know, how do we cross-sell and upsell? How do we deliver more value? How do we get them more engaged in what we're doing? If you look after that customer, that customer feels like you care and you deliver for them, they'll come back and they'll spend and they'll repeat. Now, let's be clear. That doesn't mean that we get or I get it right every single time. It's business. There's always going to be mistakes. Shit happens. Things go wrong. You're not always going to be able to keep everyone happy all the time. But I certainly try. You know, if someone's not had a good experience or something didn't quite go right, my default position is how can I make this better? How do I make this right? Mm. You know, without sinking the company, but if it means I have to give a bit or help, I'll try and do that first. Because mm. again, I'd rather have the opportunity to work with them again and show that was a one off than go, well, sorry, you know, tough shit. Uh, yeah. That's it. Because then you've just lost that customer. And the other Things thing is, go wrong with the all space, yeah, but also in the B2B space, and you know this, certainly sector I'm in, people move around as well. Mm, yep. So you piss off, you know, uh, Sue at company A, right? Not only is company A pissed off, but Sue's pissed off, and then Sue moves over to company B. You've never worked with company B, but now company B won't work with you either because Sue's <laughs> there. So, <laughs> Or maybe you are working with company B and now you don't anymore. But not, not anymore, yeah, exactly right. yeah. 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 Uh, things will always go wrong, and, and I think it's important for people to remember they're not just going wrong with you, they're going wrong with other vendors too. And so yeah. quite often the person that you fucked up with and then you made good yeah. becomes your most loyal customer because they know that when the chips are down and when things go wrong, you will make, make it up to them. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely yeah. right. Well, I'm going to get this quote right, but uh, Mike Tyson... Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Yes. And so this is the thing. It's like it's all well and good being sat there and going, 
great, this is how we're going to do business. And if everything goes smoothly, that's fine. But something is always going to go wrong. There's always, always going to be a moment. And it's to your point, it's about how do you react to that adversity? What is your go-to? Is it, you know, sorry, not helping you? Or is it, no, I, I genuinely want to make that right and fix it for you? Um, partly because in my mind, it's the right thing to do anyway. But also, as I said, from a self-interested standpoint, I don't want to have to go and find new customers. It's a pain in the ass, as we know. So, so uh, you know, I'd rather keep the ones that I've got and treat them well and look after them. Absolutely. Which, um, which brings me to something I really want to ask you about because I've, I've obviously seen some amazing people that, that I know and have worked with, we've both worked with over the years, uh, join you over at Public Sector Network and stay for a long period of time um, yeah. actually I'll, I'll start with a little a little story i suppose i i've actually i've always admired you as as a leader um oh, thank you over the years in, in like i remember when we did our our little team swap all those years ago uh i learned something that was a really important lesson for me i don't know if i've ever told you this actually i'm not um, sure you have but you you had set your it's probably the most boring lesson, but it's a really important <laughs> um, You'd actually, you'd set your team up in a way because it was a very KPI-driven environment where we were working, right? It was something that was really important to the leadership in the business and it was really important to the way the business was structured and set up. And so as a leader in that business, like you had to buy into it. And I do still believe in the importance of KPIs, but I believe in them because of uh, something I learned kind of through osmosis from taking over a team you'd set up, which is that your team were responsible for their own KPIs and their own reporting and presenting them to their individual leaders and then those leaders through to you, right? Which yeah. I took over. And I remember coming into that environment and thinking to myself, wow, this is, this is the way to remove a lot of the problems that come with KPIs, like the lazy management aspect of KPIs where it's just like, did you or did you not do the inputs rather than thinking about KPIs as like a measure of your effectiveness as a leader, but actually yeah. like giving people responsibility for owning them themselves, reporting them through, and then gaining their own sense of satisfaction for whether they were on track or behind based yeah. on what you were presenting. It was almost that whole like monkey off the back scenario rather than it yeah. being your problem to look at KPIs. It was their uh, ownership and responsibility, which had one of the most important, I think, um, side effects of all of data management KPIs uh, expectation setting, which is that you can't have anyone come in and go, oh, I'm not sure that that data is correct. It's your fucking data. Yeah. That was something I yeah. learned from you and, and something I, I, like, I, I really want to ask about because I think you've got uh, lots to share here. Sorry if I've set you up for, no, no. <laughs> for having to live up to expectations, but like, you've, no got people that have been, you've got great people that you've been able to recruit and retain for a long period of time that have obviously been very important parts of growing your business. Like what's the... What's the secret source? What's the core stuff that you believe as far as like um, leadership, hiring, yeah. attention, all of that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, look, first and foremost, thank you. Lovely to hear. And um, look, just to talk about the KPI bit just quickly, because I think it then leads into 
kind of the next part of your question. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm the same as you, right? I believe KPIs are important. They're called key performance indicators for a reason. Um, but I've always seen KPIs as a kind of means to an end, right? And what I mean by that is, is that really I'm judging you on the end result, the output, okay? And if you're delivering me the end result and the output, and if I've always thought this way and it wasn't popular with management 10, 15 years ago, it's now becoming kind of the way that most people are managing, right? And that's kind of, I'll come to that second part of your question in a second. I'm judging you on the end result, the output. At the end of the day, if you're delivering me what I need you to deliver me on time to a good standard and it's not negatively impacting anyone else, that's fine, right? The bit that you've got to own, as you mentioned there, is what are your personal KPIs that you need to do to get you there? Me giving you an arbitrary number that you have to, you know, X amount of dials, X amount of connect, that might not work for you. You might need to do more. You might be able to get away with less, whatever it is. But ultimately, you've got to figure out what is it that you need to do with your experience, your skill set, your database, your product, everything else to get you there. And so, as you said, the ownership is back on them. I'm not fixing it for you. This is the result I want. You're a smart person. You figure out how you're going to get there. Yeah. And that kind of leads in a little bit to the kind of way that I think about, again, recruitment and retention and all the rest of it. And again, look, like nowadays, this is just common sense. Nearly everyone's doing it. But it was something I fundamentally believed 10, 15 years ago when it wasn't particularly uh, popular, which is this whole concept of sort of servant leadership, right? Which is, mm, yeah. I'm there, my job is to make my people's life easier and to make them better. They're not there to make me look good. I'm there to make them look good. And I always remember drawing years ago the, you know, the, the pyramid, you know, workers, managers, you know, leaders at the top. That's the way. And I've always said, well, it's not. It's inverted. Really, your people are the top layer. They're the ones that are most, most of them. They're the customer. They're the ones that are doing the work. Underneath them <laughs> is the managers that should be supporting their job. And my job as the leader is ultimately I'm at the bottom of all of this. I'm trying to make everyone look good and do better. And so I think when you have that mindset of you're not the hero they are and wanting them to do better and trying to empower them, I think that's really, really important. Okay. And, um, you know, one of the other things that I've always believed in is, you know, don't, ask people to do things you're not prepared to do yourself mm. so you know leave from the front model the behavior you know if i'm not prepared to go and do something why am i asking somebody else to do it i think those things stand out and make people realize that you care about them and you're a bit different but in terms of the recruitment and the retention piece again certainly covid has been a game changer for this already right but again we were doing this long before covid as well we, let, we had a completely remote, flexible work culture from the outset, okay? Yeah. And I believe that years ago because, again, I go back to the point of if I don't trust you enough to sit there and do your job and I'm, I think I need to be sat over your shoulder micromanaging you, you know, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, why the fuck did I hire you in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, put, I hired you. I put you in the job. <laughs> If I don't think you're good enough to do it and you need to be micromanaged, then why did I hire you? You're the wrong person. So yeah. I've always believed that, you know, there's this whole thing you need to earn trust. No, no, no. I give people trust from the outset. It's yours to lose. If you fuck up and you lose it, that's on you. But I'll give you the trust from the outset. 
And that comes down to hiring well. But I think if you hire well, you give people trust, you give them latitude to do the role the way they want to do it and give you the results. I think you end up empowering smart people. And typically, if you empower smart people, they do well and they want to stick around because they're like, well, I have freedoms here. I have, I'm respected and I get to do things the way that I want to do it. And that doesn't mean I completely abdicate, you know, my management or leadership responsibilities and go, okay, well, I'm not, you know, do what you want. You have to obviously have oversight of things. But I just think if you've got the right people on the bus to begin with and they're in the right seats, then that's, that's half the battle for me. Um, and I think the reason people end up getting so stressed with recruitment and management and training and all the rest of it is because they're probably putting people in that shouldn't be there in the first place. Um, and that's why, again, we've got such a high retention number. I mean, don't be wrong, we've lost staff the same as everyone else has done. Everybody does at um, some point. At some point, but again, I mean, if you think about the numbers, we've had a very, very low attrition turnover rate, you know, as a business over the last eight years. You know, the people that started with us eight years ago that are still here, you know, yep. most people have been here for pretty pretty decent tenures. And and a lot of them have uh, have progressed with the business? Yeah. Or, yeah. or because the role that they're in has exactly the flexibility and meets their skills and their requirements, they've stayed in that role and, and excelled in it. You know, you can, yeah. you can clearly see that over time. I think um, I, I, I imagine you must have been absolutely over the moon that you made the decision about remote workforce when uh, when COVID hit, <laughs> that you were already yeah. <laughs> Because yeah, I can tell no, you, was, I wasn't at the time. We were one hundred percent face-to-face in-person delivery, both product and all of our team, uh, and had to switch that in the span of about two weeks. Uh, you must have been. Yeah, no, I can't. Say, I can't say it was easy. I mean, don't get me wrong; it was easier because we had some experience. But we'd already made an investment in terms of digital products, and we'd also made a bit of an investment in terms of, as I said, we were a remote, flexible business first. And, and to be candid with you. There was two reasons we set the business up that way to begin with. One was, again, because of my belief system that, you know, if you're hiring great people, you know, let them get on with it. And that became a bit of a USP for us in terms of recruitment. Mm. Um, and it allowed us to, to bring in people that otherwise may not have been as interested because they were work-at-home mums or lived outside the city or were in a, you know, interstate or whatever it might be. It was also just bluntly it was a cost factor to begin with it was like well let's not have an office or let's have a small office and then we can save some money we're a small scrappy startup you know so it was there was dual reasons for it um but obviously when covid came through yes it was a massive win for us in the sense of we were already set up for it the downside to it of course is that now every fuckers move to this model and so we've kind of lost that uniqueness about you know the flexibility and the work from home and all the rest of it but the one thing I would say, and this kind of comes back to something else I was wanted to talk about with you, is even though we were already set up for you know remote, flexible, mm. hybrid work and all the rest of it, there is a difference between seeing people once every couple of weeks or once every to then not seeing people for you know a couple of years, which is realistically what yeah. happened for most businesses and. That is a challenge. It's, you know, I don't think anyone solved this. I'm certainly not saying we have. You know, it is really hard now to manage big teams fully remotely. People have got used to not coming to the city or the office and, you know, how do you coax people to come back in and, and that kind of thing. And I think for sales, sales leaders and sales reps, 
I think we're, we're missing an opportunity there because I know certainly from my career when I started learning and then started coaching, so much of that was face-to-face. I mean, I would not have known my mm. arsehole from my elbow if I wasn't sat next to somebody yep. listening and watching what they were doing. Um, so I think there's a I think there's going to be a, a payoff somewhere down the line where you know people are missing some really core important skills because they're sat at home doing the job all the time. Um, yeah. So I don't think it is all, all positive. I think there's definitely some some issues there that are going to come out in the wash. I mean, and and um, certainly some major psychological challenges that happened during yeah. that time. Yeah. Really friggin' hard. Um, you know, we we are at Trust the Process. A big portion of our business is an outsourcing business, and one of the things that I've definitely learned from having offshore teams, even uh, you know, over the years, even outside of everything that happened with COVID was that um, you have to make sure you find way more opportunities to not talk about work. Like mm. you cannot start every one of your Zoom meetings with, okay, what's happening today in the world of business? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have to find way more, way more times where you can just, people can just have a laugh make a few jokes, talk about what's going on in their world and like have a few more human moments. All those moments that would have happened, you know, the around, around the office type yeah. stuff, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, in the elevator, all that sort of stuff. You just have to create those moments. And if you don't go out of your way to make them, uh, people just lose momentum and personal connection with what they're doing. Uh, it's so much yeah, easier. Every, every meeting feels like a, a bit of a chore, whereas – in the office, you go to me, you know, you're in the meeting for the meeting state. You might have a few pleasantries, but you're there to get that bit done. But if you're not seeing people day to day, then yeah, you're right. Every meeting opportunity, you have to use it as an opportunity to build some rapport and relationships with people that otherwise you wouldn't see. Um, I've got a couple more things that I want to ask you about. One is, um, is about kind of, one is about kind of trajectory. Uh, I know every, like, experiences may vary in the world of business, right? Everyone's journey is different. Um, but I have seen in a lot of businesses, there's kind of two phases that you're in, right? One is a growth, fa- well, three, if you account for uh, sometimes things really go wrong and you go backwards. Um, yeah. There is there is the growth phase where we're moving ahead, we're growing, and it could be at various different paces at various different degrees and steepness. Uh and there is consolidation and searching. I think a lot, a lot of businesses get trapped in the do nothing, right? Yeah. They're like, I'm happy with where we are. But the truth is you're either going forward or you're going backwards in business. That is a, a core mm-hmm. belief of mine. And so there are times where you're not really growing, but you're searching. And when you find that next thing that helps you take off, it might be a new product, it might be a new uh, lead source, it might be a new audience, whatever it is, then you, you take off. Uh, but rarely does it just kind of go constantly upwards. For those people that are just listening on audio, I'm with my hand. <laughs> yeah. Drawing, drawing a, hill, a straight line hill. Yeah, aeroplane taking off. Um, so I'd just be interested to know for you, like what have you kind of seen in terms of, of how you kind of keep that growth going? To go as far as you guys have gone in the time you've done it. Yeah. Uh, what's that kind of growth trajectory been like and what have you learned from it? Yeah, I think I'd, I'd, I'd agree, not disagree with you, but I'll explain how we've done it a bit differently. But I, I completely agree in the sense of 
you can't just have continuous, relentless upward mm. growth, you know, forever because it's, it's tiring, right? And <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, so there is this natural growth plateau, growth plateau type model that I think is the healthy and right way to do it. The difference, I think, well, not what I disagree with, is the difference the way we've done it is I don't think we've ever deliberately done that in the sense of, okay, we're going to run an idea, then we're going to, you know, look at the processes, refine it, get it good again, and then go. We're always in the background churning new ideas. There's a, you know, we're sat on mm. a lot at the moment. We're still, we're, and we're always trying to push them. But I, I think just naturally you have to sort of, as you said, sort of take a risk, go for it, put some products out there, get it into the market, see some rapid expansion, hopefully some customers come on board. And then once you've done that, and you've done enough of that, I think then you learn from that and you go, okay, cool. Well, that was our first, our first idea was this. Actually, now that we've delivered some of that, it actually looks a bit more like this. And therefore that's how we're going to refine. That's that kind of plateau phase where you sort of go, okay, we're going to refine that. We can make this, we can deliver this a bit cheaper. We can do it a bit better this way. Actually, we don't need as many people on it or we need more people or, and you sort of repackage whatever that product is. And then you go again on another growth spurt with it and you take it back to market in its new format, if that makes sense. So, um, but ultimately, look, this is something I honestly believe about business. Nine times out of 10, assuming that, ex I mean, execution is obviously key, right? So that is the difference. Ideas on their own won't, we need the idea, but really there's only two parts to business. It's having great ideas and then it's executing them on them. Mm. And the best ideas will win out as long as you execute on them well. Um, and again, without wanting to oversimplify it, but they're the two levers, really. You know, like that's why it's always important to be thinking and inventing and iterating and coming up with new ideas. Because again, I do believe the best ideas will win out in the end over time. Mm. But if you don't execute on them or execute on them well, then that's where you miss the mark. And then that's where you see other companies come up with stuff and sort of ju jump ahead of you. So, you know, there is that natural uh, flow, as you said. Um, and I think it's just about understanding that within your business that there are going to be, you know, ups and downs. Again, as you said, it's never a, never a smooth ride <laughs> to the top. Um, there's going to be mistakes. There's going to be things you need to change. You've just got to be ready for those and accept it and move on. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, something you said there about like you've got to go and execute comes back to something that you talked about when we were, um, you know, discussing doing this this podcast is uh, that you just have to do the work. Like you have yeah. to, you can't, you can't jump to the end. You have to put the work no. in again. It's always a price to pay at some point, you know. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I think, I think the interesting thing about entrepreneurship nowadays and starting and running, running businesses, everyone wants the end result. Everyone wants the outcome. Uh, a lot of people were shocked that, oh, actually, I have to fucking work to get to that mm. point. <laughs> it's not just a case of uh, setting up and all of a sudden you're rolling in money and it's easy. No, no, no. There's a lot of work that goes in, in the, on the journey with it. Um, but again, again, maybe I'm different. I don't know. Don't get me wrong. I, I look at the end I say end, and this is what I'm talking about. There is no end point. You know, whenever you get to where you think the end is, that's the start of another new part. So, 
yeah. you know, you've got to enjoy that journey and just keep going with it. And I, I, look, I personally like the work. I personally like the grind. I like the hustle. I like the ups and downs. Um, not everyone does, but for me, that's kind of a fun bit. That's why you get up and do it. Yeah. Um, I remember something we used to talk about years ago, which is like if you can fall in love with the process, yeah, then actually the result will end up looking after itself. You know, absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, I've got one more question for you. Uh, I know that I know that you are, you know, like a, a sort of self-led learner, uh, somebody yeah, that's I'd been. Like to think a, so that's been an avid reader for a long time. Uh, I kind of caught my uh, reading bug, particularly in terms of business and things like that from uh, a mutual friend of ours, Mike Adams, all those years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's that old saying, the, the biggest difference between where you are today and where you are tomorrow is the people you meet and the books you read. Uh, yep. I'd love to know from you as somebody that's done a lot of reading uh, and you know, progressed a long way in in their career. Like, what's a what's a book that you you know you look back on and go, that was a really important uh, book for me. That's one of my favourites. That's something I recommend to other people. And and why? Yeah, and why? Great question. Great question. I do do love a book. Again, I, I like the fact you describe me as a self led learner. But um, the reality is, I just enjoy reading, and I've always enjoyed reading. I enjoyed reading as a kid. It like helps, my mum couldn't. <laughs> my mum couldn't put me to bed like honestly you know it'd be like yeah. midnight of sort of school in the morning i'm still there under the covers reading the you know famous five or rolled yeah. roll down or whatever it was so yep. uh, i'm lucky in that regard that i've always loved books um, and so i do is the answer books. james and the giant peach james and the giant peach classic yeah no um but i also do like books so that's the other thing just to specify I can't, i'm not one of these kindle readers or anything yeah. like that for me there's something about having a, you know an actual paper book you know that you read and you can annotate and all the rest of it so that's just for context um the other thing as well just to add is i love business books i love autobiographies i love that kind of stuff but i also get a lot of value out of um fiction as well so like i do think it is worth blending both um mm -hmm. you know i read every night before i go to bed still um i think sometimes business books can lose their power if that's all you read so I do think it's good to try and flip between different things to sort of, you know, break it up. But not to avoid your question, but to eventually get round to it. Uh, I'll give you a couple of different books and I'll, I'll tell you why. The, the first one is a really, really boring answer. So I'm going to apologize for it. But it was the first, one of the first books I read, one of the first sales books I read that I just thought, wow, brilliant, amazing, so good. Um, and that's Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Mm. Um, just such a common sense book. It's obviously sold millions and millions and millions of copies around the world. But in terms of like a personal development standpoint, uh, I just think it's, you know, one of the, one of the go-to classics in terms of, you know, that kind of, that kind yeah. of thing. And then, um, one of the other books that I've read, and this is not a recent read, by the way, but something that uh, just just loved reading it is uh, Shoe Dog. Um, yeah. So the the Nike book again, just a brilliant story. And they're the sort of business books I like reading. It's not an autobiography per se. It's not just a hardcore textbook about you know yeah. business, but it's a narrative, a story, a journey. 
about you know how they got there um, and i'm a big fan of that brand i really like what they do i love the way they've advertised their business and grown it and the sports athlete endorsement endorsements and what they stand for generally um most of the time um but in terms of just like a really really good read mm. i think shoe dog is uh yeah one of one of my favorites that is a great one you know one of the lessons that i i found really interesting in that is um like don't delay staring deeply into your problems, right? Which is yeah. that, do you remember the part of Shoe Dog where they were having major major manufacturer uh, problems? Yes, right? yes, yeah. And, and, and what he talks about a fair bit there is like, I had to fix it and I had to fix it quickly. Um, yeah. Know, obviously, there were there were major repercussions that maybe they might go under and not be able to continue as a business if he didn't solve the problem. But that is true for a lot of businesses with their single biggest mm. problem. And yeah. and if you don't, you know, if if it's eighty percent of the things that are holding you back or might put you under, you've got to be putting at least eighty percent of your focus and your attention to solving that problem. You know, like there's a lot of product businesses that have supply chain problems, manufacturer problems and all these sorts of things. And they just kind of go along with it for a long period of time. And it's a major block for them. That was a big, a big lesson I learned from that. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people, it's, it's the fear of change. You know, it's, mm. we know we've got to do something about this, but maybe if I just close my eyes and shut them tight, maybe it'll just go away of its own accord. Yeah. Um, and you kind of get into that whole analysis paralysis piece where you don't know what decision to make and all the rest of it. Sometimes the best decision is just making a decision, whatever it is, and, and getting on with it. And um, one of the ways that I like to think about decisions as well is there's a, a famous um, Jeff Bezos kind of thinking process, obviously the, the Amazon CEO, which is around one-way doors and two-way doors. And, you know, two-way doors are, we, we're going to make a decision, but a two-way door situation is we can go through that door and if it isn't the right door, we can walk back out of that door. So you can go through and then you can mm. revert back and change if it doesn't work. And they're relatively low risk decisions because we can try it. And if it doesn't work out, we just go back through the door. One way door is once we've done this, <laughs> there is no change in it. So they're the decisions that you've got to be fucking super on because once you go through that door, there is no coming back through the other way. So that's the way to think about it is, you know, is it a one-way door or a two-way door? Is this something that we can try and do? And if it doesn't work, you know, we can come back. Because those ones just, just get on with it. Um, obviously, if it is a really big decision and it's a one-way door, then that requires some, some extra thinking time and process. But, yeah, it's, uh, I think most people just are reluctant to make those decisions. But that's, that's the hard part of the job. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. You also mentioned there, like one of the first ones you read from a sales perspective. Um, it reminded me of like the very first book I was ever given. Uh, I was like 16 or 17. Uh, yeah. and my dad gave me a copy of how to win friends and influence people. Uh, Ooh, good and classic. Kind of, yeah. uh, I didn't, I, I didn't read it straight away. <laughs> Yeah, because I, I was a teenager that thought I knew everything, uh, but eventually, <laughs> I, eventually I did, and uh, that was a, a game changer for me. But some of those classics, anything from Coach that poor dad, etc., they're still yeah. they're still heavily, heavily relevant. You know, there's still yeah. so much to learn, and the the basic skills of 
understanding how humans want to interact and communicate. I think, uh, you know, lots of those those lessons are just as relevant today as they were back then. You know, some of these were written in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And Most of modern day thinking is just a reinvention of what came before anyway. It's the same with music, <laughs> you know. Yeah, 100%. Um, Anyone who's ever read so, Meditations, uh, Marcus yeah. Aurelius, will see the, that that is very true. <laughs> I don't yeah, know when that yeah. was uh, when those meditations were originally written thousands of years ago, but uh, lots of very relevant pieces in there. Aside from the uh, pieces about slavery, obviously. Yes, yeah, so slightly outdated and thankfully so. Point of view. Thankfully so. Uh, well, uh, thanks. On thanks that for note. <laughs> On that note. Uh, this has been a really good conversation. I think there's so many things that can be learnt from. Uh, people that have been through the process of building their own businesses. So much stuff that we want to talk about here in terms of sales, in terms of marketing, in terms of uh, customer acquisition, but also, you know, customer delivery. One of the core tenets of the model that we talk about here is um, help them succeed. And so I love that you talked a bit about um, a bit about sort of customer value and delivery today as well. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hopefully we'll ha uh, you'll come back and join us again. Hopefully it wasn't too painful and, we can have more uh, of these always a pleasure, mate. with the record button on. Let's do it. Good man. All right. right. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Ross.